Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm talking with Eric Bokunas. He's a senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg, where he extensively chronicles the ETF revolution. You'll frequently see him on Bloomberg talking about the latest ETF news. He's the host of the Trillions podcast, which has a focus on ETFs. Eric is also the author of an amazing book, The Bogle Effect, which goes through the story of Jack Bogle, which covers the growth of passive, low-cost investing and ETFs and how this legacy continues to impact markets. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you. Great to be here. So how'd you first get interested in investing? college really. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I took a bunch of different majors and I was into school for science. And so I did biology and that was okay. But one day I went to chemistry 101, probably my sophomore year, saw the syllabus, heard what the session was going to be on. And I walked out. I was like, I'm not doing science, even though I like science. I just, it was too much. And my brain isn't, isn't that way. So, but macro and microeconomics, I took as part of a broad curriculum and I liked it. At the same time, I was writing for the school paper. This is in Rutgers, the Daily Targum. And I really enjoyed journalism. So I majored in communications and minored in, in economics. And so I basically got a job out of college. I actually tried to get into Bloomberg right out of college because I thought this makes sense. But they rejected me. So I went to work at a newsletter called Fund Action, which was put up by Institutional Investor. And I wrote about funds. And then I wrote a little bit about derivatives as well during that little stint. And then I did some public relations work in the financial field. And then eventually, and I'd actually try to get to Bloomberg a second time in that period. I had been to Bloomberg's office and I was like, this place is dynamic. Like it was like an electric beehive. That's what it felt like. And I was like, I have to work here. So eventually my third try, I got into Bloomberg doing public relations. Naturally, that's sort of where I got into the economics. I just, macro and microeconomics, it just sort of fit my brain a little. I can understand it. It was interesting because it was like opening up lifting the veil on just how society works in terms of how things get around. And I just thought it was, it was really fascinating. And so I just combined that with journalism, which was, if I had to pick my more, my bigger passion is writing, but economics would be too. Awesome. Yeah. So what interested you so much about macroeconomics? Like, was there any aspect of it in particular that really uh, roped you in? Yeah. I mean, I just remember, you know, things like the equilibrium, supply and demand, the law of diminishing returns. These were all just interesting concepts to me. I don't know. They were just more interesting than learning something about chemistry that was so in the weeds or bio. It barely had a link to the earth. Like there was just way too much math and really just things that you need to know, obviously, to be someone in that field. But I just didn't, I didn't like it. I wanted more quicker look at how things work, I guess. I don't know. It just made more sense to me. It was more interesting. I was more interested to learn about that. I enjoyed some of the case studies. I think capitalism, and I think the, it was the Wall Street Journal tagline is adventures in capitalism. I, I enjoy reading about all of that. A lot of like about stakeholders and I don't know, it just sort of fit me more. But remember at the Targum, I went back and looked at my old articles of the Daily Targum. It's funny. I wrote about I did write some economic articles. I wrote one article about whether the Fed would raise rates Greenspan. That's <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know writing it, but I did write that. But I also wrote like about bands coming to play at Rutgers, you know, conflicts with the student council. I covered a lot of stuff. I remember I covered the guy who played Jason in Friday, in Friday the 13th. He came to give a lecture. I covered that. 
So I really, I kind of enjoyed writing about everything. It was just that in college, having to pick some kind of study that was connected to my college, economics was the, the one that made the most sense for me. And that's why I picked it as a minor. That's awesome. Yeah. And I guess from the get-go, you already had a strong interest in economics. And then on top of that, you already had an interest in journalism. So it makes sense that that's how things would play out. Yeah. And then my first assignment was mutual funds. So at Fund Action, I was covering, this is the late 90s. So, you know, at that time, it was like, oh, T. Rowe, PIMCO launched the closed end fund, you know, or T. Rowe Price this or Fidelity this. You know, occasionally we cover Vanguard. They, they were small back then. I remember they were, you know, I don't know where they ranked, but they, in my radar of like who I'm covering, they were just one of 10 companies that you would look at. Fidelity really ruled back then. They were like, if you can get a Fidelity interview, that was like the biggest thing. And everything that the guy who ran the Magellan Fund, anything he did was like, you know, they wouldn't even talk to us. They would, the journal was lucky to talk to him. So I had got a good dose of the active fund world in the 90s. So when I finally, when I went to Bloomberg and got ETFs assigned to me, I was in the data group time. I could contrast ETFs with mutual funds. And I was like, man, these things are like five evolutionary steps beyond the mutual fund. It really, in my opinion, I am a fan of music. It's probably the difference between the compact disc and the MP3. You know, is anybody into music's like, this is it. This is going to transform the whole industry. So then I, in 2006-ish, I got fully into ETFs. And I really enjoyed ETFs because as I told you, I get bored easily. I like novelty. And when I did journalism, I like covering all these different things. Well, ETFs are just a vehicle. And so you cover everything. I mean, ETFs send you all over the place, whether it's different active strategies, different parts of the world, different industries. And so ETFs also really fit my brain. So once I, once I got a hold of ETFs and figured out they were going to grow, I just knew they were going to be big. I just put my heart and soul into that in covering ETFs, you know, and I was early and it worked out. Like there was a lot of, it was like a wave that was a swell at the time that broke big time, you know, a couple of years ago. Awesome. And so high level for the listeners, like what are the advantages of ETFs versus a mutual fund? I mean, Reggie Brown, one of the most famous market makers in ETFs had the best definition I ever heard for, you know, just simple terms. It's a mutual fund with benefits, you know, and I would say that it basically is, it's complicated because ETFs have everything now active and passive, but largely speaking, the early ETFs were index mutual funds that traded on exchange very simply. So you could buy and sell them at any time. So you have intraday liquidity. They also, because they have passive roots, they tended to be really cheap. And while there are expensive ones, they are generally cheap. The asset weighted average ETF fee is like 19 basis points versus about 69, 70 on the mutual fund side. So they're cheap. And because of the way shares are created and destroyed, they're tax efficient. If you're in a taxable account, you'll rarely see an ETF spit out a, a capital gains distribution. Whereas in a mutual fund, you could just be sitting there and you get one because the fund manager is trading. ETF has an interesting, I won't get into the details here, but has interesting mechanics called the creation redemption process. And that is a really, really powerful thing. And it allows for arbitrage which means the price of the ETF will always be close to the NAV because you can ARB an ETF in basket. And it also means that you're able to exchange the shares for shares of the ETF, the underlying. So when you do that, there's no cash exchanging hands and therefore it's not a taxable event. So long story short, that creation redemption process is like the magic sauce. We can go into that more if you like. I have had to teach classes on ETFs and that's certainly the part where people get tripped up or bored the most. So I won't go into heavy detail there, but the mechanics of ETFs are really powerful. 
So we were talking about the advantages of ETFs versus mutual funds. I liked it where you, I heard you on another podcast called the flux capacitor of yes. the ETF was the creation redemption function. And yeah, uh, yeah so, it's super interesting. You know, it's a, and I'll tell the story right now. The guy who invented ETFs, Nate Most, worked at the Pacific Commodities Exchange. So what he did, he took a, a commodities warehouse concept and just applied it to stocks and bonds. And what I mean by that is at this commodities warehouse, if you had a bunch of soybean oil and you didn't want to like trade the oil back and forth because there's a lot of physical goods, you put the oil in a locker and then you get a receipt and then the receipts could trade. So if you got a bunch of receipts, you can go back to the locker and get a bunch of soybean oil. If you had a bunch of soybean oil and didn't want to carry it around, you could put it in the locker and then just have the receipt. So that, he just said, well, what if we do, instead of soybean oil, we'll do it with the S&P 500 stocks or you know, eventually with bonds. And so that's why the first ETF is Spider, which is S&P depository receipts. I always tell people ETFs are receipts to something that's physically backed, which is another advantage ETFs have over derivatives generally is there's no counterparty risk because the, the underlying is stored with a custodian. So there's that too. I also think another underrated benefit is their standardization. So for example, everybody likes the way equities trade. There's price transparency. They're on, you get on a brokerage. It, there's not a lot of them. It's just easy to trade equities, right? Well, ETFs make everything trade like an equity, whether that's oil futures or junk bonds or gold, right? And so that standardization of how you can trade everything like an equity is huge. And then I would probably also put that convenience. This underrated one, especially in the spot Bitcoin ETF debate, all the uh, some crypto people are like, how hard is it to remember a password and some codes? You know, and I'm like, look, some people just want to outsource stuff. They're lazy. They don't want to, you know, do all the work. They just want to buy an ETF and have someone do all that for them. So convenience, they're very convenient too. And I think that's a powerful advantage. Now, mutual funds have some of those, of course, but I'm just saying those are the main ones, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I'm one of those simple people who just wants to be able to log on to a single account and see all the financial assets that I have. So I definitely see the advantages of that. Yeah. And it, you know, when I wrote, I wrote a book, another book called the Institutional ETF Toolbox. And in that book, there is even a couple of advantages institutions have, which are, you know, anonymity. When you trade ETFs, nobody knows who it is. And I know as an analyst, it's, you know, sometimes that's why I have to read the tea leaves. When you see a big trade, you don't know who it is. Uh, you can look at the 13F, but that's delayed. And, and also you're trying to have a guess. So if you're an institution and you quickly want to put on an emerging markets trade, ETF's a good way to do it. You don't have to call anybody. Nobody knows. And nobody will feel that trade because like EEM trades like $2 billion, $3 billion a day. And so you can get in and out, very little impact costs. No one knows you're there. And that kind of anonymity and convenience is even powerful to an institution. And you know, institutions get the red carpet rolled out to them by asset managers. They can get anything they want for cheap. But even that liquidity and anonymity and freedom, I think, are powerful as well. Because a lot of institutions, if they get into a separately managed account, there's a contract, they got to call people. So again, even to the most sophisticated, largest investors who the world is their oyster, even ETFs can appeal to them as well. Yeah, it's amazing. Something I've always wondered, why do you think the mutual fund industry allowed this to happen. So it seems like they were already so powerful in the 1990s. They probably already had a bunch of politicians in their pocket. How did they allow this to take place? It's a good, I think about this sometimes because especially the tax efficiency, I feel like ETFs are taxed fairly, which is like when you sell, you get taxed. It's taxed on your behavior, not somebody else's. I thought early on the ICI should have said, wait, 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 ETFs, they should have said either ETFs are 
a tax loophole and should be closed or, hey, make us like them. Either way, I think in the end, mutual funds are unfairly taxed and ETFs are fair. So I think mutual funds should be fairly. But outside of that, there's not really much you could say. I mean, it's just a, it's a different kind of thing. It's the taxation where I feel like mutual funds really drop the ball with the lobbying early on. Now they all have ETFs and so they can't lobby against themselves. So it's too late to do that. That said, you know, you can't really stop evolution. I think, you know, in my book, The Bogle Effect, what with the real problem wasn't the ETF, it was they got vanguarded. And what happened was in the 70s and 80s, when the active mutual fund business was massive, they kept raising their fees. And even though they got bigger, you know, you charge 1% and you have, say, 10 million in assets, you need that money. That's like only 100 grand a year or something. But when you get to be like 40, 50 billion dollars or 10 billion dollars, even that 1% is so much money in dollar terms. Whereas they probably should have shared some of that economies of scale. They still would have made a killing, but they didn't. And so the industry got totally wealthy. And you could argue a lot of them didn't even outperform. So they got rich for actually failing at their jobs. Meanwhile, Vanguard is cutting fees left and right every year, 70s, 80s, 90s, before anybody even cared or it was cool. So once like the world turned a little and information spread and Bogle had like got done enough preaching that it was catching on, it was so over for them because when Vanguard in the in late 90s, 2000s, they were already down to 20 basis points and active was 60, 70. And people just started to catch on to this. And they're like, wait. So when the ETF was launched, it launched at a price of 20 basis points. Why? That's what the Vanguard 500 index mutual fund was in 1993. So that's why in my book, and part of the reason I wrote the book is that Bogle, even though he didn't really like ETFs, had a profound impact on their growth. Because if you price SPY at 80 bips, you know, you're not, it'll be a trading tool only. But pricing it at 20 makes it really open up for the whole retail universe of the advisor world. And so ETFs started on third base with that low fee. So now you got low fee and trading. So that's why I wrote the book, The Bogle Effect, because after I wrote the Institutional ETF Toolbox, I realized ETFs are disruptive force for sure. They're different. But the real true disruptor, if you just pull the thread and you keep pulling on all this, you end up in 1974 in Jack Bogle's brain and his decision to set up a company that was owned by the investors. Done. That is what all this springs from. So I hear you, mutual funds were disrupted by ETFs, but the real disruption was Bogle and the ownership structure. Gotcha. So your book, The Bogle Effect, it's a great book. Do you want to talk about what The Bogle Effect is? Because I think a lot of people think about The Bogle Effect solely in terms of market cap weighted index funds, but it's I think it's much more than that. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So you know, again, as an analyst, I look at the flows all day and I just time and time again, I'm like, damn, you just go right back to 74. And you're like, if this dude hadn't set up this company this way, I'm not sure much of this happens. I mean, there is just no incentive to turn over profits to the customer. It's like uh, some kind of like Mother Teresa act by somebody who's on Wall Street. And there's just not a lot of that thinking on Wall Street. So anyway, I was like, it wasn't just passive, right? So he basically came out with the index mutual fund. That's what he's famous for, father of passive. But I really thought the ownership structure of, of Vanguard was more important because the first index mutual fund was 65 basis points. It took a long time because every time they got profits, they would vote for spending the profits to lower the fees because the people on the board were the investors. So they were naturally voting in their own self-interest to make the fund cheaper. So that's why it took like 30 years to get down to 10 basis points, which is when it really spread like wildfire, right? 
So I thought the patience of him to wait 30 years for that was all was interesting. I also thought that when you look at the flows today, you know, let's say half goes to Vanguard or a third, something like that. Most of the rest goes to people who were forced to copy Vanguard. So you're looking at BlackRock ETFs, Fidelity's index mutual funds, you name it. Even JP Morgan has Vanguardian type beta, cheap beta. So you realize that like Bogle's responsible for like 90% of where all the money's invested in America every day. So whether that's an ETF or a mutual fund, I mean, a mutual fund or, or active or, or passive. And then I thought there was other things like, for example, active. I think now you're seeing the rise of low cost active. I think that's the Vanguard effect in effect. I also think that the more passive takes over the core of the portfolio, the other, it'll push active to get more active so they can be complementary. So ironically, the rise of passive is sparking a more active active, like a ARC or active thematics or concentrated portfolios. I think that's one future for active. Also smart beta. Vogel uh, pioneered what's called smart beta. He introduced the first value and growth index mutual fund. That's now a whole $2 trillion area of the market. Uh, you call it quant or whatever, but he definitely democratized quant as well. And also behavior. You know, when you think about behavior, you get all these academics who are like, you know, they talk about all the psychology and they almost like take credit for it. Even advisors, I see them take a lot of credit for behavior, but I think Vogel is wildly underrated for improving investor behavior because once you introduce a, you know, sub 10 basis point index mutual fund into the market, that has a powerful effect on behavior because a lot of investors, once they get that and they lock into their brain that this is a, the deal of the century, they're just never going to trade. They, I call it the great resignation. So when the market goes down, that's why passive flows come in rain or shine. Nobody, nobody flinches because they're like, what am I going to do? Jump onto this other fund that's probably going to outperform for a minute and then underperform. Nah, I'll just stick with this. I got a good deal. So by making a cheap index fund, you make the brain be able to resign and tolerate downturns. And I can't, it's amazing how many people take credit for behavior when it really is that. And so I have a whole chapter on behavior. And then, you know, just there's some other little things like the idea of, you know, how companies vote. Bogle had written like, you know, 11 books and like two of them have a lot about like how Vanguard's voting. How, what does that mean for America and how to keep CEOs in check? So I have some stuff on that because the bigger passive gets, the more that's going to matter. So and then you take all this and you apply it overseas. Where does it work? When will it work? And then you've also got things like Vogel heads. Like, you know, there's Buffett heads, right? They have the Buffett meeting. But over time, you know, Buffett will be regaled. But I really think the Bogleheads are, it's, it's Buffett's more like, hey, this guy was great. Bogleheads, it's more like this system of investing rules because they'll use fidelity mutual funds. So in a way, I think Bogle actually sparked a mini religion in the financial world. And I've been to the conference. They're very, they even have fights over like the purity. It's like a real religion, you know? So you look at all of this and you sort of, I just tried to track the rippling of what he did in all of these areas. And when you really like open your eyes to it, it's just mind blowing. Yeah. And I agree with what you said about the difference between Buffett versus Bogle. I mean, with Buffett, it's not replicable. Like there's so, and there's so many people trying to replicate what Buffett did and they, they can't do it. But Bogle has given people this gift where this is a strategy that you can easily implement and you can you can follow these principles that he's established. I thought long and hard in the beginning in the intro of the book, I said, to me, he's a combination of Steve Jobs and Martin Luther. 
you know, the guy, the Protestant Reformation guy, mm -hmm. because he would preach about how sucky the church was right in the church. You know, Bogle was like, he'd go to ICI and say, you guys are all charged too much. I mean, he was like, and he, again, he's, he basically has triggered a whole new religion, but at the same time, he made really easy to consume products that swept the nation and like completely changed the industry, just like Steve Jobs. It's really, really weird to have all that in one brain because you could have a vision, you could be good at preaching, you could be good at selling, but you just aren't good at maybe product design or you're not good at like managing people. He had it all. And again, very rare. That said, he wasn't always the easiest to work with. He actually got fired from his first company, Wellington, and then the Vanguard board booted him out. So that's why I have a little bit of a, a punk rock thread throughout the book. This guy was like kicked out of his own band like twice. And he was very cantankerous and he fought Vanguard constantly for about 25 years. So I can't say he was a perfect human, but certainly it's weird to have all that in one brain. Usually if you can put like three of those things, like managing people, design and vision and the ability to to communicate and sell. It's rare a one person would have four or five of those things. Usually if you have one or two, you're gonna have a successful career. But if you get like four or five in one person, those are usually the greats. Those are the ones that stick out in history. So that brings me to my next question. So why do you think Jack Bogle did it? So he could have probably made more money personally by getting more deeply involved in active investing. Even after the blow up that happened at Wellington, he could have probably just started some new active fund and made more money personally than he made at Vanguard. So why do you think he did it? Why do you think he went on this mission? That's a great question. This is part of why I wrote the book. I wanted to get to the heart of the matter. Like, why would this doesn't make any sense? This is still the only company that's mutually owned. It's wildly successful, yet nobody's copied it. That's weird, right? Well, because there's just no economic incentive to do it. That, and when I asked everybody, they said, well, because there's no incentive to do it. Well, this thought was like, well, why did he do it? Nobody really had an answer. They're like, it's a good question. So I was like, let me explore that. So I have a chapter called Explaining Bogle. And I basically went through why I think he did it. And the first thing big time is that uh, if you are old enough to have ever had a a person you've known who's lived through the Great Depression or is from a World War II generation, they're just different, right? They're generally way more thrifty. His son said that he wore the same khakis for 40 years. He just didn't have a love for money. Like he didn't have that gene, that Michael Douglas, you know, Gordon Gecko Wall Street gene. He just wasn't built like that. I also think that his great grandfather was a like a rabble rouser guy. And he wrote a couple pamphlets about how the insurance industry was ripping off firemen. And Bogle loved this guy. His name was something Bannister. I forget. I have to look in the book. But this guy had a book where he wrote, gentlemen, lower your fees. And I'm like, man, that's what Bogle says. So there was a little genetics involved. And I also think another thing that was huge in Bogle's mind was the 60s. You know, when he was at Wellington, he kind of like, he saw what a publicly traded stock, how you have to serve the investors of the stock which are at odds of the investors of the company, uh, the funds. So he did see that. And then when they had, they were getting, in the 60s, Wellington was very conservative. They had a balanced fund. And the 60s were like the last 15 years where like all of the arcs of the world and the growth funds were getting all the money and the flows. And so he had been tasked with running Wellington. And he said, well, we, we have to team up with like a, a growth manager or an equity manager. Anyway, long story short, he teamed up with the company. He didn't really loved that much, but he was desperate. And they kind of like screwed up this company, but he had given them too much voting share. So they fired him 
after the 60s market dropped and everybody in the 70s bear market hit, everybody was fighting with each other at that firm. Anyway, in order for them to like, I won't go into details, but there was a quirky legal situation where Bogle was still the president of the funds themselves, whereas they were president or they had voting control of Wellington, the company. And so they each had a little leverage. And so in order to work out this disagreement or like who should do what, because they really hated each other, they came up with a solution that the board could agree with, which was Bogle will do the back office work. And when they set that company up, he made it mutually owned because A, he saw serving two masters was hard, but B, it was a way for him to not look like he was getting a lot of money out of the deal. So Vanguard, the back office was born really out of necessity. So there was some sort of necessity or luck, I guess, in a way for this to happen. But you have to ask yourself, if another person was in that situation, they probably just say, oh, the hell with it. I'll just go work at Goldman or something. Yeah, He could have worked anywhere, right? He was very popular in the industry. So I still give him credit for choosing that, even though when I interview people, they were like, well, there was a lot of circumstance. And I'm like, so yeah, there was definitely circumstance, but there was a lot of circumstantial things that had to happen for this Vanguard mutually owned structure to exist. It almost as if the universe was willing it along. But Bogle certainly was the right guy. I just don't see anyone else purposely doing it. So those are some of the reasons that I think he did it. And then I also think like, you know, like a lot of people want to who go to Wall Street, they don't want to be loved. They just want to be rich, right? Powerful. Mm -hmm. I think Bogle wanted to be more adored and revered. And I think a lot of people who want that go into like the arts or entertainment or religion, right? They're, this is not the right industry for that. But he was almost miscast in a way. He didn't have that gene for like, I want all the money. He definitely, though, wanted adoration. And I feel as though, you know, even if his son was saying like when he was older, they go on vacation, like somebody would stop him. And he loved that. And his son, his son was like, we never understood why he cared that much or would like stop and talk to somebody for 20 minutes on the street. But he really, really. I think like that. And I know his dad was couldn't hold down a job. I think he drank a lot. I think there was some need to be loved or liked. So I really tried. I mean, this is me getting playing, you know, Carl Jung here. <laughs> but I did try to want to find out what drove him. And I do think there was a little bit of a miscast. What fills somebody's void inside who moves to Wall Street, especially in the 70s and 80s? He didn't have that. But he did want to be loved and liked a little more than he liked money. And I think that had to play into it a little bit. So that's the best I can do to explain why this happened. But I went as deep as I possibly could, because again, this is like studying an anomaly in physics. This doesn't fit the rest of the laws. And so I think it's worthy of this deep of a dive. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And I think those are some good explanations. And uh, I think at the end, you really touched on something where he would love to talk to Vanguard investors. And I'm sure that must be really rewarding to hear from all these people who are basically saying, I retired because of you. I sent my kid to college because of you. Like that has to be incredibly satisfying. Oh yeah. I mean, he um, saved letters. He had like boxes of letters and he wrote people back. And I know just from interacting with myself, he wrote a lot. I mean, everybody I talked to said that he would, they get letters from him, emails. He took the time to do that. And when he started Vanguard, he actually didn't do any marketing. He liked that it was small and he kept saying, these are all like actual souls and humans and we can't forget that. So as Vanguard got really big, he didn't like it. He thought we're going to lose track of, it's going to be too many people and we're going to like lose touch with the, the fact that each of these people is a person with a life and 
if it becomes numbers and stuff, it's going to turn into a big bureaucracy. And so when I, I remember visiting him in 2014 ish, 15, I think Vanguard had 3 trillion and that, that he was like, I can't believe we have 3 trillion in assets. That's just gross. And now they have seven, eight. <laughs> so, but <laughs> I do think at the end of the day, you know, I have a chapter called Bogle versus Vanguard and I know people at Vanguard. I think they're, they're all trying to do a good job and Vanguard offers such a good deal. Of course, they're going to get the assets. So in one way, how do you keep something so powerful, so small? But I think I try to put Vanguard, whenever they had a, a difference, like ETFs were a big problem for Bogle, but Vanguard did them. I tried to put like both people's explanation in the book and just let the reader be the judge because Bogle was pretty, a, pretty much a Puritan. And, you know, not everybody is, is as hardcore with everything. That's part of why I call the book the Bogle effect. I was going to call it the Vanguard effect, which is the term I use in my notes and my research a lot because, you know, like uh, if BlackRock lowers their fees or somebody else does, I'm like, it's, you know, this is the Vanguard effect. Or like with the Bitcoin ETF, I'm like, asset managers love this because the Vanguard effect isn't going to play out here probably for a long time because Vanguard's never going to launch one. So I use that term a lot. But when I wrote the book, I realized, I don't know what's going to happen to Vanguard. They could be run by somebody who just is like, not Vanguardian or very ambitious. The Bogleheads certainly have a gap with Vanguard. And Vanguard could be regulated. The government can say, you're done growing. But Bogle and what he did, I thought, was something that is, that's this sort of more, that's the lightning in a bottle, is the guy. It's the guy and the structure of the company. And so I purposely named the book that, even though I knew it would sell less copies because way more people know the name Vanguard than Bogle which I guess is also another testament to him in that he didn't you know, totally take over in terms of his name. I think over time, I think his name will, will grow and grow. I think history will be very kind to this guy. But Vanguard right now, I think, is the bigger name and the name more people know, especially younger people. But like even people who are in the industry, they'd sometimes call the book The Boggle Effect. Like they didn't even know how to say his name right now. I thought that was interesting. That's, again, part of why I wrote the book. I, I felt this, this guy deserved this kind of a look at his life and, and really the, the effect, the ripple effects of what he did. Yeah, absolutely. So you touched on this a little bit. So I want to talk a little bit about his opposition to ETFs. So why was he opposed to ETFs when it seems like the natural evolution of his ideas where you have a product that can be much lower cost than a mutual fund? So what was his main opposition to ETFs? Two things. He didn't like trading. So he's like, why bother making a trade? Because I want you to hold this thing for 50 years. Don't tempt people to trade. And so that was one. He just didn't want his fund to trade. Uh, number two, over time, he did not like all the quote innovation, you know, all the thematic ETFs and all that kind of stuff. He thought a lot of that was just marketing. He called ETFs the greatest marketing invention of the 21st century. He also equated ETFs to like handing an arsonist a match. He thought investors are their own worst enemy. It's better that they're in a mutual fund. And, but even his closest friends disagreed with him on that. Like Rick Ferry, who's like basically president of the Bogleheads, you know, uh, what's his name? Bert Malkiel. These are big fans of ETFs. ETFs was one of the areas he was a man alone in. And I think I would go in and when I did my interviews with Bogle, I spent like, I don't know, a couple hours with him a couple of times and I was an ETF guy and at the end of the day, he'd be like, well, the SPY trades, it turns over 3,000% a year. And I'm like, yeah, but that could be like five institutions trading a lot, lot of money. There could be 70% of people in SPY just sitting there for 20 years. You can't untangle the volume number. It's a gross number. It's a blunt number. 
So I think ETFs to me, I say, are like the Plaza Hotel. The lobby could be bustling, but there's plenty of people just asleep in their rooms. To me, that's sort of, and if you just go in the lobby, you'd have no idea. So I think Vogel got hung up with the action in the lobby. And I think he would admit that though. But then he just, I don't know, he would always be like, but, you know, they, they, they still trade and this and that. And then I went over the tax efficiency and he'd be like, okay, I'll give you that. They're a little more tax efficient, but people are trading them. So they're going to get taxed anyway. And then like with the innovation, this is where Bogle could be really funny in like his savage way. He would come on our show and like, he could, he'd be so bothered by these really, really niche products. He'd go, did you know they have a drinker's ETF? Well, okay. It was called the whiskey <laughs> ETF, but he called it, and he'd misname them too. And it was cute. It was funny. He would like, what in the hell's going on around here? You know, <laughs> he just, and when I went to visit him, I was like, he's 86, 87 years old. How does he even know that the whiskey distiller ETF launched? Like, I would just think that would be too beneath him. Like he'd be off, like, I don't know, just like on a sailboat or something. Like he was really, really into the industry, even to his like last years. But those kind of ETFs bothered him. Smart beta, even though he pioneered it, he ended up souring on that. He said, he had value for when you were older and growth for when you were younger. But what happened is people just chased performance and they ended up doing worse in both. Then they just stuck to the S&P. So he soured on all of smart beta and international. He started internationally, soured on that. So another interesting theme here was it wasn't just ETFs. He had such an impact on all these areas, international, smart beta, ETFs. But then he would like trash them. And I just thought that was really odd. So Bogle would be out there trashing all of these areas at Vanguard where there's got Vanguard salespeople trying to get assets in them. And that's just how hardcore he was. But at the end of the day, he, he, it's almost like the older he got, the more pure and simple he got about what you need. And that's why he is famous for not thinking you need international, which is highly controversial. Almost nobody agrees with him on that either. And so he just was like, really just the S&P 500 you know, or the total market, you know, you're pretty much good. Uh, so, you know, again, he could have though eaten that because his company that he set up has people working for those areas, but he, you know, he would crap on all that. And I just, again, that was part of the fascination was that he was like punky even to his own company. And, but he, again, he, I guess he was just trying to adhere to what he thought was the truth. Yeah, absolutely. So where do you think the effect goes next? So You've gotten basically, you can get exposure to the broad market for free. You can get exposure to multiple asset classes for almost for free. So what do you think are the next phases of evolution for this effect? Yeah, good question. Two places I'll go to. One is active, right? So we know that passive in the core has made active more active. And it's made for some pretty crazy stuff like thematic ETFs, which again, they're more viable because a lot of people have a hot sauce bucket in their portfolio looking for really wild stuff. But the core, that cheap beta core, people are open to putting a little active in there, but active has to be cheap. So what we're finding and what's actually playing out right now is that active is having to reprice itself to account for the fact that beta is free. So we call it beta adjusted fees. So if your active share is low, like DFA or Avantis or capital, well, capital groups in the middle, you've got to charge a lower fee. Advisors are willing to buy active again, but they just want to pay for the active. They don't want you having like Apple and Google and JP Morgan in your portfolio and charging them 80 basis points. Either have to be really different and serve up something special or lower your fee to a beta adjusted point 
40 bits seems to be the magic number. Once these funds have gotten below, they've actually started to get bite. So that's part of the Bogle effect is now just playing out inactive. I think that's where it's happening now. Then the next place it's going to go is the advisor world. I think the advisor world, you know, they all move to be the fiduciary model where they get paid as a percent of their assets, but a lot of them charge 1%. And remember that example earlier on in the podcast where I said active mutual funds in the 70s or 80s missed an opportunity by not sharing economies of scale. Because when you charge 1% and you have 10 million, you need that money. But when you charge 1% and your fund is up to 10 or 20 billion, you have so much more money than you really should have. You're making more than like heart surgeons times 10. You should share some of that in the form of lower fees. Advisors are now in that boat. I feel they're active where active managers were in the 70s or 80s. And what's interesting is they're carrying the mantle of Bogleism. They're like, hey, we love cheap, but they charge 1% and they still get the bull market subsidy. And as they get bigger and bigger, I try to tell them, make sure you take care of the customer because you're going to get bogleized yourself because Betterment and Vanguard itself now has an advisor that's uh, you know 30 basis points to five basis points. And Rick Ferry is out there saying he wants to be the bogle of advisors. And he's interesting because advisors are consumers of all funds. So nobody messes with them. So they get to control the narrative out there. But Rick Ferry is an example of somebody who doesn't care. So he touches that third rail and talks about their fees, but you can see them get all been out of shape. Yeah. So I, and I <laughs> those are funny. Say, oh. Those are, that's always funny on Twitter. I love it when Rick just decides to mix it up with all of the FinTwit advisors. It's, it's pretty yeah, amusing. No, they are not used to it. It's like, whoa, how dare you? I'm the one who's supposed to talk about the other, the fun fees. So yeah, I do think that advisor fees are, are probably the next area that's going to get bogleized. You know, Vanguard itself has a cheap advisor, but so does Betterment. And I think, you know, the hourly movement where you get paid per hour, I think could grow. But what's really weird about the hourly thing is like, if you go into an advisor and they charge you for the hour, they could say, well, it's a, you know, $1,000 for an hour. And you're like, that's crazy. But that is peanuts compared to how much you pay them. If you give them like 1% of your assets and you have a couple million. Yeah. It's weird how the mind works. So psychologically, that percent is easier to stomach. But I think over time, as people like Rick and hourly people really show them, I think the advisor world is going to get mobilized next. I think, and that's a huge world. That's $30 trillion of assets in the advisor world. So I would go with those two areas. I think areas like private equity and hedge funds, I debate whether those will ever get mobilized. I think those are always going to be areas where institutions love the exclusivity and they actually are fine paying up. And those are areas Vanguard probably won't compete in. So maybe you see a little bit there, but I think, you know, those areas probably are just going to remain like kind of special. So if somebody really want to make a ton of money on Wall Street, I think, you know, private equity is probably like the best place to go. I just don't know if that'll ever get vanguarded like these other areas are. Remains to be seen, but I would put the those two things, active and advisors as the next areas where the vanguard effect is going to play out. Yeah, I agree. And advisors, when their fees come down or they switch to an hourly model, it's also probably going to benefit the customer too, because the customer will, those advisors will need to offer more services. Like you can't just say, oh, I'm going to put you in some beta products and charge you 1% AUM. Like you're probably going to have to offer tax advice. You're probably going to have to offer estate planning, et cetera. So you'll see an effect where I think the customers will see their cost come down. And on top of that, they'll get more out of out of the fees that they're paying. Yeah. That's been one area where advisors are just build up more value. I still think, though, 
the fees will have to, I mean, it's just going to get more competitive on the fee front. Yeah. I would do both. I would build up value and then I would throw bones to my customers in the form of sharing dollar fees that are in aggregate of what I normally get. Because if I do the same work for you and the market has a good year, because the market goes up 8% a year on average. So you could say, well, why would I share fees? Because the market goes down, then I take a hit. But like, I think over time, let's, let's say the market has a couple of good years. Again, I would just say we're cutting all your fees by 10 basis points because uh, all the dollar fees were so great that I made a ton more and I can share some with you. And I just think that would bank a lot of goodwill and it'd be harder for that customer to get like peeled off. Just like in the active mutual funds, I feel like in the book, I have a chapter called the fall and rise of active. And the fall part is the missed opportunity of not sharing some economies of scale when they easily could have. And I think also when you're an active fund by lowering the fee, you will have a better chance of outperforming too. So the SPIVA reports that were damning in the, in the 2000s and 2010s, they wouldn't have been as bad either had they done that in the 80s and 90s. But in the book, I also great, take great pains to say, I wouldn't have shared the fees. I would have sponsored the sports stadium. I would have hired more people. I would have bought a second or third house. Yeah, it's human nature. Uh, it's human nature. So I don't, but I'm like, but that's the books on this guy. That's why this guy is an anomaly. So I try not to be judgy because I would have done the same thing they did. I'm just trying to, and also these are, these are customers of Bloomberg, right? These are my, I have friends with some of these people. So I, I never try to be too judgy in the book. I just try to dissect what happened and be as honest as I can, because as a fun analyst, my job is to sort of give good advice on what's going on and what's going to happen in the future. So I do remind people in the book uh, here and there that like, I would have done the same thing. This is just what bogles just the weird anomaly. Yeah, he, absolutely. So for my last question, so one of the big criticisms of indexing is this idea that we're in some kind of passive bubble that there's so much money pouring into passive index products that it's distorting the market. What would you say to to those people? I mean, let's pick a stock. Like Tesla goes up and down very independently of it's in all the index funds. There's several examples, you know, in my PowerPoint, I have an example of GE in 2018. It it had a bad earnings and a bad PR and, and the stock went down like 37, 40% in a year. Whereas the index mutual funds and ETFs that owned it took in a ton of money. And so the tail could not wag the dog. Now, would GE have gone down 45% instead of 40% because there was a bid coming in from the passive people? Probably. So in my opinion, what passive might do is slightly buffer the edge of a downfall because you do have some bids coming in. So if you're a lover of stocks, you probably should love that. You probably should love that there's these investors out there who just can't be shaken. Again, this is if you're a bull. If you're someone who's shorting the stock, maybe that's a little frustrating, but you still could short a stock and make money. Like GE went down 40%. That's still good. Maybe it would have gone down a little more without the passive bid. But, you know, I don't really have a problem with it because also when you say passive, like the Russell 1000 is different than the S&P 500. The S&P 500, you actually have to qualify to get into it. You can get kicked out and there's even a human committee who can like override all, all of that. So it's kind of active in a way. And when I look at stocks like Macy's, it got kicked out of the S&P, Tesla got added. Why? Well, because active mutual funds, active managers decided Tesla was worth more. So they bought it and the market cap went up and then it qualified for the S&P. Whereas Macy's, they didn't like it. They sold it and the price went down. The market cap shrunk, it got kicked out. So in a weird way, passive is really just following the lead of active. 
they are free riders. You know, that is the truth. And so I do find that active sets the prices and they're doing fine job where I think you might find some legit concerns is one in the voting passive gets big Vanguard now owns 8% of every company in America. That's a lot of voting power, BlackRock too. That's a worthy topic of discussion. And I think they're going to try to decentralize that voting and let the investors vote. I think that would go a long way to solving that one. The other one is the more passive owns and the more, and the less, the more um, disciplined they are, the more you might have GameStop type situations where if you have more and more passive ownership, there's certain stocks, not like an Apple, but maybe like a mid cap or small cap where you could have a group of people kind of like mess with it because there's just less active volume. So I do think you could see some more volatility in some smaller names because there's less trading going on because the passive blob is just doing nothing. But I would say those are some concerns. I tried to blow them off. But this whole idea of like passive ruining everything, I don't know. I just, I don't buy it because sniff test wise, you still see stocks go up and down in a hurry based on earnings and other variables. And they should. It's when like, when they don't, like I would be more worried. But at the end of the day, all passive, truly passive funds might own, I don't know, 15% of the stock market. If you throw in some institutional SMAs, maybe you get to 20 but then you're like smart beta. I would consider that actually active. It's just rule-based active. So that sometimes gets countered as passive. So when you really start to untangle this, I just don't find it to be that big of a deal. I asked Buffett the same question. He actually answered my email for this book. I asked him a couple of questions. And one of them was, do you think index funds are too big? And he goes, well, no, I still recommend people buy the S&P 500 who are like, you know, novices, but you know, down the line, it could be an issue, but that's a, issue for another day. So it's possible, you know, over time, uh, there could be a point where, I don't know, passes too big. I'm not sure. But the good news is active is getting so cheap now and it's starting to take money in. So as the Bogle effect has hit active and actives responded, I think this will take care of itself naturally, which is why I really think though this whole trend is not active to passive at all. It's, it's a high cost to low cost. And so that's why I think this active renaissance is good because, and it's part of, again, the mogul effect. So I think this will all, the market will sort this out as these companies get cheaper with their active, the money will respond. And so I think it won't be a problem at the end of the day because people will be getting low cost active and be happy with that. Yeah, I agree with you on, on all points, particularly when you're talking about if you just look under the hood and you look at individual stocks like GE or Macy's or whatever, you can see that there it's not like these stocks are just going up for no reason just because they're big, like people are reacting to fundamentals. So do you have any parting thoughts for the audience? Anything you, you might want to add? Uh, not really. I think, uh, you know, just that it's important to separate Vanguard Vogel from ETFs. I think ETFs are a really good vehicle. And I actually disagree with Bogle on ETFs. I think ETFs are the vehicle delivery mechanism for investing strategies for the next 20 years at least. And they've got a lot of Bogle DNA in them. But I think it's also important to understand the Bogle effect and, and the you know behavior and, and active and ETFs and vehicles. So I think there's just, it's important to understand the difference between those two. But I do think ETFs are where are just beginning. I think they're third inning in their growth. And so I think it's a great industry and it's a big tent. Everything from triple leverage to active strategies to like 
bogleheadish kind of like cheap beta. And so it's a fun area. And if I'm just parting thoughts, if, uh, if people are, you know, interested, obviously uh, we do a lot on Twitter and that's like free, you know, way to sort of follow ETF information as well as some of these other trends. So I guess that'd be my parting thoughts, but also I would recommend people following you. I, you're one of my favorite follows uh, on Twitter as well. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And are there any particular means where people can talk to you and meet you? Is, is Twitter the best place to do that? Yeah. And my DMs are open and I generally respond to the, you know, normal people. There's a lot of weird shit that, that comes into Twitter <laughs> DMs, but you can quickly, you quickly know who is weird. You can just talk from the first couple <laughs> words of the DM really. So, but if you DM me, I'm happy to respond. And if you, if you have a Bloomberg terminal, uh, just IB me. I mean, if you're a terminal user, I'm at your beck and call basically for anything you need, but I'm available Twitter DM. I think that's the best way. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you for having me on. It was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.